The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Manchester Derby. Man United crumble. Haaland blowing past people like he's Philip Schofield. We'll get the reaction. North London Derby 2. Second time in a month that a game's been disrupted by a royal send-off. Wolves dismissal. Go large and go home. Club tell manager. But after Nuno and Bruno, who now for the Midlands side? We've got all the news and the best views on a remarkable round nine of the season in this Totally Football Show. Third of October, 2022. Listener, thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a lot of Premier League to talk about, but of course, our thoughts with uh, everyone affected by the stadium tragedy, the really terrible news of what happened in Indonesia at the football game there this weekend. Over 100 dead and uh, many, many more injured. Uh, just, uh, Just a horrible, horrible disaster there. Uh, now we have with us today Daniel Story, Adrian Clark, and Tim Spears. Hello, everyone. Hello, hey guys. Morning, James. Morning to you. Morning to you. Uh, it's game week nine of the season. My word, nine games so far. Thirty-two goals. Nine of them in one match. The Manchester derby, which finished six-three for Man City, with hat tricks for Phil Foden and Erling Haaland. And meanwhile, the weekend's other big derby saw Arsenal beating Spurs 3-1 to stay a point clear of Man City at the top of the table. Elsewhere in the Premier League, there were good starts for two new managers. Graham Potter's Chelsea won 2-1 at Palace to go fifth, a point off the top four. While Liverpool welcomed Roberto Di Zerbi to the Premier League, promptly went 2-0 down to his Brighton before rallying to end up drawing 3-3. Newcastle got their second win of the campaign, 4-1 against 10-man Fulham. Everton also got their second win. That was a come-from-behind effort at Saints and 2-1 that finish. There were no goals between Bournemouth and Brentford or Leeds and Villa, while a 2-0 win for West Ham against Wolves saw the Midland side parting company with manager Bruno Large. Excellent. Quick sting. Then let's get into the Manchester derby. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. All right, Man City six, Man United three. Uh, Tim, you were there at the Etihad for the highest scoring Manchester derby of all time. And they wanted more. They wanted 10. They were saying they wanted 10 after the third goal around by me. I was I was in with the fans, with the Man City fans, doing a piece on, on derbies this weekend. I was at Arsenal Spurs and I'm going to Leicester Forest tonight. Not the proper derby experience so that I'm not hung over and I didn't get arrested. Um, but it's been, it's been a pretty... Did you punch a horse, a- perhaps? <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I tried. It was too quick for me. Um, it, but it's been, a, it's been a pretty incredible weekend, 13... 13 goals in two games and uh, and the big one still to come tonight. Right. Well, yeah, and two hat-tricks in, in this one at the Etihad. Uh, I mean, the, the world is awash with the Erling Haaland stats and we'll get onto all that madness in a second. But a quick word for Phil Foden. My word, he's really coming alive. Yeah, and I don't think he had been so far this season, really. He's sort of very similar to Jack Grealish in that it feels like they're maybe not quite fully fit or not quite clicking. Um 
if you, if if it was going to click for a Manchester City attacking midfielder, it helps to play a defence that is prepared to have four of them standing within five yards of each other, three of them claiming for an offside that, that isn't valid, while Foden just sort of dances through and asks if anyone's noticed him. It, I mean, it was embarrassing the space he got. Uh, the finish for the first goal, I thought, kind of summed up City's performance because it looks everything looks so easy, and yet you watch one slow motion replay and you just realise how kind of exacting and you know almost like sort of scientific everything they do is, and yet still beautiful because it was a it was a gorgeous finish with his left foot. Adrian, you're nodding. Did you want to add some Foden? feels <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan of Phil Foden no I just just thinking about the defending there and it, it just felt like it was more like Mannequin United than Manchester United they, they, they nice. in that first Ooh. half they, oh, they yeah. in that first half though they were so static and they were all standing in the wrong positions anyway so this was this was a major problem and and I don't want to take too much away from Manchester City because they were scintillating they're, they're a sensational team and they, and they brought their A game. But this was an absolutely dreadful Manchester United first half performance. They just had no bottle, no real belief. Didn't look like they had any tactical organisation. And that central mm. spine where, where Phil Foden made hay, running off Ericsson for the first goal and, and, and others for the, for the others. But it was just remarkable how empty it was. I, I just couldn't quite get my head around it. Adrian talking about that central spine there. My favourite bits of the game or the bits that maybe kind of laugh involuntarily weren't the goals. It was Manuel Akanji and Nathan Ake kind of picking up the ball and then just sort of realising there was 40 yards of space for them to not even run, just sort of saunter forward with the ball and then eventually pick a pass about 40 yards from goal. It was as if Manchester United were playing no central midfielders. I, I can't believe he didn't pick Casemiro, given this is presumably exactly what he was signed for. But it just, mm. there was just no movement from McTominay. I mean, McTominay was was dreadful. He wasn't really helped by Christian Eriksen, but he was he was the worst, the kind of most guilty party, I think. But just no pressure on the ball at any point. We'll come on to Ten Hag's decisions in a second or two but let's just round up the Erling Haaland numbers because he really is you called it scientific he's science fiction Haaland is the first player in Premier League history to score hat-tricks in three successive home games Haaland now has as many Premier League hat-tricks as Ronaldo Vardy and Lampard in eight games put that in perspective Michael Owen took 48 matches to reach three Premier League hat-tricks and that was the fastest ever Ruvan Nisseroy done it in 59 Luis Suarez took 71 Erling Holland has done it in eight on his own he's outscored this season Man United 17 goals to 11 he scored a goal every 13.6 touches and he got two assists in his game extraordinary Mark Watson online japing Haaland should go to the World Cup and every team is allowed to summon him once in the tournament for 30 minutes. He arrives by parachute. We'll work on the logistics when we have this approved. I mean, I like that. A shout out to, um, checks notes, Scott Parker's Bournemouth, who remain the only club in all competitions this season to stop Holland scoring uh, for the benefit of Copenhagen, who face them Wednesday in the Champions League, and then Saints next weekend, or indeed Liverpool the weekend after that. What do you do against Holland in this city? This passive approach that Man United had clearly just was not the answer. I, I had a fantastic view of City's movement. I was um, the second from back row of the third tier. Uh, so it was a bit like watching a, a game of sensible soccer. Um, but it was, really, it, was, it was really interesting to watch well, Foden, Grealish, 
De Bruyne and um, and Haaland in particular. But even from that incredibly high vantage point, Haaland's legs really really stuck out. I mean, they are they are meaty thighs that could crush walnuts. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I just felt like United were just were just mesmerised by him and, and and by City because they weren't leaving huge gaps necessarily, but they were just so passive. It just sort of played into City's hands as good as the, as good as they were. It just played into City's hands. And also with the formation as well. I was just going to say, my um, my, my my good friend Paul, who's a diehard Man United fan from from Surrey, saw the starting eleven uh, and messaged me at one pm and said, um, starting one dm versus City, Eric Ten Hag confirmed as psychotic. I think we'll lose seven three. Oh. Um, so he was, was only one goal out. I don't. I think history shows that. You can't really try and take on City at their own game unless you are yourselves an elite opponent. You can't be passive, which is what Manchester United were. I think the only way to to try and... It's not about beating them, it's about them making them doubt themselves. And when they doubt themselves, you can kind of expose those mental flaws. But I think the only way to really do that is through kind of outright physicality. That's what I think Real Madrid have tried to do before, just sort of hustle them. And... That's hard this season for two reasons, partly because the season schedule is so relentless that you've probably got another game in three or four days and managers will think, well, that's not necessarily going to work. So why should we expend all this energy trying to, you know, maybe only lose by one or two goals or maybe get a draw against City if we've got a more winnable game coming up? And also because of Haaland, because he is this just this physical beast, central defenders cannot do that to him. You can maybe hassle them in midfield, but then further up the pitch they'll still bully you anyway so that looks like an impossible plan as well I I think the only answer is to hope that they're not on their A game because there are occasions when that happens and you know Newcastle exploited that for example part way through a game you can just sense that they're not quite on it but if they are on it it's an impossibility I think for most teams in the Premier League I make you right, Daniel. I, I do I think I think physicality is the way to the only way to really um, stop Manchester City potentially. It's putting enough pressure on them so that that final ball into Haaland from De Bruyne or Silva or, or any of the other guys is affected by by what you do, and it's just slightly off. That's, that's the only way I can think that that they might they might be troubled this season. I mean, on on Haaland, it's timing, isn't it? I think his timing is precocious. It, I think it's borderline genius, actually. Something you can't begin to coach um just look at that the, the way that he got on the end of that de bruyne cross just every aspect of it from a timing point of view was just sensational wasn't it the way that he ghosted off the back of the defender the the timing of the slide getting those studs out at the right moment to meet the ball it it, it took my breath away really and and you can even look at his assist the, the one for foden where he just slides it across goal the timing of that Again, just perfection. It's remarkable, isn't it, that that a lot of people, a lot of you know, very clever football people, were wondering could he handle the Premier League? And it just all sounds so silly now, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. Well, we let's move on from that quickly. Let's move on from that quickly. Let's talk about United. Daniel says, "I don't blame a single United supporter who filed out early." Daniel, even though they missed them beating City three two in the second half. Yeah, even that. Uh, yeah, I don't because you can accept your team 
playing badly and you can accept your team being outclassed and Manchester United are at, are at a level at the moment where if City play their best they will win comfortably but the attitude of of kind of as a collective in defence and of certain players as well I thought Bruno Fernandes was an embarrassment to be honest yesterday he's either moaning at the referee while running or moaning at the referee while stood still or moaning at a teammate for overhitting a pass probably a minute after he's overhit a pass I thought the only player who came out of it with really any credit or certainly of the starters was Anthony and he's only been there five minutes he he looked he was the only one that looked visibly annoyed by what was happening rather than just broken everyone else even Rafael Varane just looked broken whereas he just looked kind of put out by it as if to say you know we need to actually try and do something here and he and he did and his goal was brilliant what did you make of Ten Hag's um, explanation for not using Cristiano Ronaldo, sparing him the the embarrassment of being involved in such a game, such a performance. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm hearing I mean, your reaction. What, what, yeah, the only the only thing that in Manchester United's favour is they didn't score a calamitous own goal, and then Eric Ten Hag sort of after the match thought, well, you know. Hold your horses. I am prepared to score a spectacular own goal here. I mean, he was always going to get that question because Ronaldo didn't come on. He should have known mm. that was coming and he should have known there's a very easy deflection, which is just the state of the game meant I didn't think it justified it. Or the fact Fine. that Martial scored two goals. Exactly. And presumably came on in his place. Exactly. Do you think it was, do you think it was a, a big mistake? Should Ronaldo have come on? No, I don't. I think, I think, I think he's past use for Manchester United. Um, but especially in, in this system. But there are ways and means of, of not extending that story onto Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. What would you have him at the club for, having said that you, he was still part of your plans, if not if no. not given his, his, his past to, to bring on when you're 4-0 down anyway? Yeah, I wouldn't have him at the club anymore. I mean, I know it's not mm. as simple as that, and I know they struggled to shift him, and therefore, or he struggled to shift himself, and therefore Ten Hag was left. He, he gave the right answer at that point, which is while he's here... You know he will be a valuable member of the squad, yada yada. Um, right. But yeah, I don't think he. I don't think there is any purpose for him in that club anymore. I was going to say um, the fans leaving at half time. They were actually really sort of defiant at two 0 In fact, they were the only ones singing uh, for for a large period of the first half. But then after the fourth went in, uh, and it was nice hearing the the pitch of the noise of the celebrations getting higher as as the goals went in three, four, and five. I always I always enjoy that a football game. Um, but at four 0 the City fans were basically saying, "Why the f are you still here?" That was the chant, and then I think a lot of them just decided to go home. And then the day was summed up for me when I was leaving the stadium about an hour after full time. There were two Man United fans walking past me out the ground in their red shirts, and a, and a car slowed down in the road. Someone wound down their window, started cackling like a hyena just just laughed at these two Man United fans and then rolled the window up and just drove off I've never seen anything like it um, but they, they didn't even react to these two poor guys they just carried on walking straight face oh dear. wow well one thing that Ten Hag could have said about Ronaldo is that he was keeping him fresh for Thursday night's action when he might get a run out against the Ammonia Nicosia in the Europa League he'll enjoy that uh, three days later United will be at Goodison Park Face Everton, that'll be an interesting game. They are nine points off the top as it stands. One point off the top, meanwhile, are Manchester City, because good as they are, there is one side who are one point better off than them, and that team is an Arsenal team. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. 
Hello, I'm Ian Stone, host of Handbrake Off, the twice-weekly Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic each week. I'm joined by two of Amy Lawrence, Adrian Clark, Art De Roche, and James McNicholas. What a lineup that is to talk about the best club in the Premier League. This week, join us to bask in the North London Derby glory. And let me tell you, do we bask? <laughs> yes, we do. Come back later in the week on Friday as we look ahead to another massive tussle with Liverpool and look to keep the number one firmly by our name. Search for Handbrake Off now, available wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you could hit follow to make sure you keep up with the best team, that's us covering the best team. That is Handbrake Off. So good, we made it twice. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Martinelli and Granite Russell 3, Tottenham 1. Tim Blunt, you were at this one too. And Daniel and Adrian, Ooh. I think, as well. Yeah. Full house, yeah. Yeah, to watch Spurs' 13-game unbeaten run in the Premier League coming to an end in an abject manner. Is that fair? Certainly the last sort of um, 20 minutes felt a bit humiliating for, for Spurs, really. I counted five stand innovations for Arsenal players as the uh, as the Tottenham fans drifted out. Um was there cackling? <laughs> didn't hear it. <laughs> didn't hear any cackling. Um, although the the, em- the sort of very empty away end reminded me of that of the of the famous four all draw a few years ago, and I was thinking, hang on, it's only it's only three. They didn't look like making a comeback, but you know, if if I was a Spurs fan, I'd have, I'd have remembered that day and maybe hung around. But no, it was it was a pretty miserable um, miserable second half, and I, I think a lot of Spurs fans were, were expecting defeat, but probably not in that manner. It was a shame from from Spurs' point of view that it was just individual mistakes that that cut, that cost them a, a shot at a point. I know there were a lot of Tottenham fans frustrated with how they approached the game anyway, but they were in a decent position at half time, and they looked like they were troubling Arsenal through the centre, you know, on the counter attack. But that Lloris clanger, and then a really daft red card, and and it's game over within what thirteen minutes of the second half. Mm. Arsenal taking the lead with a magnificent strike from Thomas Partey. Kane equalising before half-time with the penalty, then that Jesus goal, and then the red card, and then Granit Xhaka. Adrian, Granit Xhaka has scored as many goals in the Premier League this season as Mo Salah. What's going on? I love, love that stat. I absolutely love it. Yeah, from, <laughs> from revulsion to reverence, Granit Xhaka. I mean, they love him now. They absolutely adore him, and it's... I couldn't be more happy for him because he's, he did have to endure a fair bit of stick. And, you know, for, for all of those years, really, the, the Arsenal fans didn't take to him. He was a, he was a figure that, that they liked to blame. And he, he didn't help himself with, with, with a lot of rash decisions and bad tackles and red cards and whatnot. But, but yeah, he's loving it at the moment. And um, this new role 
that does suit him. You, you have to say that what the is previous the managers. Well, basically, it's uh, the system now is very much a four-one-four-one, which leaves Thomas Partey as the sole defensive midfielder. But when Arsenal have the ball, Zinchenko effectively becomes a central midfielder. So it's three-two. And then there's a five. And Granit Xhaka is part of that front five now. And he's given licence to cause a little bit of chaos, to, to make runs off of opposite number midfield players like he did in this game. And and, and to interchange with, with Martinelli at times, with Zinchenko. It, it, it's a very fluid role. But it basically, in layman's terms, gets him 20 or 30 yards higher up the pitch where those incisive passes can make more of a difference and and he's because he's not needed he's not needed as a defensive player anymore because there are five better defenders behind him he's not needed as a progressive passer from left back because the whole back four now are, are all excellent progressive passers so you can just 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 cut him loose a little bit and and yeah he had five touches inside the box in this game obviously one of them for the goal um, Harry Kane had two um, so you know that stands out I mean looking at it across the board I, I, I think touches inside the opposition box is quite relevant in this fixture um, because it, it, it signals the, the difference in approaches Arsenal were kind of attack 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 Spurs were very much sit in and we'll, we'll, we'll break and that's it between them Kane, Richarlison and Son had seven touches inside the Arsenal box Martinelli had eight Saka had eight and Jesus had 13, which equated to the total number of, of touches by Spurs players in the whole game. So so if I'm Kane, Richarlison and Son, I'm a little bit frustrated that I'm not getting more touches of the ball in the areas that matter. So that's something I think for Antonio Conte to consider moving forwards. Um, but but yeah, this match was about Arsenal and, and the development they've made. It, it was really, really good fun, I've got to say, um, to, to, to watch it to watch it unfold. I just thought in a high pressure, high stakes game, considering what happened and how they crumbled last season in those big matches, I thought it was brilliant to see the confidence and the positivity in their football. Um, mm. Yeah, it was, it was glorious. The most impressive thing for me is a, you know, relative, well, a, a neutral watching it as an observer of the Premier League. Is It's amazing how quickly that this Arsenal team have gone from this is a very young team that we need to have a lot of patience in to, hang on a minute, this this is an Arsenal team who uh, are top of the Premier League and nobody's really talking about the age. You look at the, the, the age of the squad, you've got Partey and Jacker in central midfield who are 29-30 and are kind of the senior players in that team. There's no one else who's older than 25. And the, the only two that were 25 are Zinchenko and Jesus, who are the two new players and have settled in really quickly. Around them, you've got these... Everybody is between 21 and 23 years old. And that is not just really impressive and not just the kind of the embodiment of this new Arsenal era. It's also hmm. pretty obviously sustainable over a long period of time because I, I think they will get better. How old is William Saliba? He's still 21. And what? this is what I mean. that They've got players in that team almost across the board who have got a huge amount of experience. Not not all successful experience, but a huge amount of experience. They've gone through things. So Martin Erdegaard had the big move that didn't work out and he's moved on. Pakaya Saka had, you know, the experience of, of the Euro final and has moved on. You've got Saliba, who's moved to Arsenal, didn't work out. Initially was sent out on loan, has come back and looks brilliant. You've got Gabriel Martinelli, who, who who wanted to be this kind of centre-forward and now looks like an elite you know, left-sided wide forward or winger. 
there's so many players in there who who look mature, who look old for their age, and that's exactly what Mark Mikel Arteta wanted. Yeah, I think in life it doesn't really start until you've taken a big old punch in the face sometimes, and I, because but in, in <laughs> we're happy to, we're terms, to tell you how you want <laughs> in metaphorical terms, because it's how you get better, isn't it? You you learn you, you learn from a disappointment, from something bad, something rubbish School that happens of hard to you. Knocks. Yeah, exactly. And mm. and Daniel is absolutely right to pick up on that because, and I think it's a driving force within the group. They've all got this collective sort of experience. The ones that were there last year had the experience of, of blowing it big time and taking their mm. medicine. And then the other players have, have all had these hard knocks too. I think it's a real motivating factor. And um, yeah, it is driving them on at the moment. There'll be bumps in the road again, but but yeah, they've just got to enjoy enjoy this momentum. It's it's yeah, fantastic. You mentioned you mentioned the the drive and also and also the the confidence agent. I mean, this is my first North London derby. I've got to say, it was I wasn't expecting the the intensity, particularly for a twelve thirty kickoff. It was remarkable. But it was my second visit to the Emirates this year. The other was for the when they beat Wolves in the last minute in February. The noise that night was was astonishing. It was one of the loudest noises I've heard at a stadium in many years and I didn't think it'd, it'd be topped really but it, it, it was um, I think Arteta said it was the best atmosphere he's ever experienced at the Emirates um, on Saturday I've got to say pre-match I was mingling with the Arsenal fans for, for this piece I'm writing about um, about derbies I've never seen ever yes I'm going to say that this is probably because I've been mostly watching Wolves for 30 years I've never seen fans so happy before a game I was hanging around on Gillespie Road and everyone's sort of drinking in the sunshine out there. Everybody I was looking at was happy, smiling, cracking jokes. It was unbelievably relaxed, you know, like an hour before a derby. It was, it was quite disgusting, really. I was like, yeah, it yeah. was horrible. I was like, do you not know? Do you not know? <laughs> you, but, but they, they, you know, they did seem like genuine football fans. It wasn't just tourists. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was disgusting. But, um, but you know, fair play. <laughs> Arsenal, at what point do we, um, you know... I, I, I don't the, think... The 32 I games. Mean, the, yeah, their, ans, their answer, and it's a, it's a very much a, a stock answer, but I think it's probably also the right one, is that because mm. of the age of the team, you, you don't do any of that. You know, They will obviously have targets within the dressing room, but Aaron Ramsdale talked after the game and he kind of made a joke about the fact that he was going to say, take each game as it comes, because he knows it's a cliche, but he was kind of intimating, well... That's what we're going on now. We've generated this momentum. So why would we do anything that, other than just focus on the momentum and see what happens? Because Adrian's right. There will be bumps in the road. But if you don't, if you don't gear everything towards where this is going over the course of the season, those bumps in the road just become kind of incidents. They don't become, well, this is a huge setback because we know Arsenal teams of old, they've allowed those setbacks to hit them. But the one thing they've mm. done brilliant this season is, is lose to Manchester United and then immediately go and win at Brentford where they lost last season and, and beat Tottenham at home. A gauge of where Arsenal fans are at is probably what I was thinking yesterday when I was watching the Manchester derby. Who did I want to win? Was I, did, I, did I want did I want City to win to to, mm. to sort of knock Manchester United for the place in the top four, or did I, did I want City to lose so that Arsenal had a better chance of winning the title? And I absolutely was, was leaning towards. I'm happier if City win this, and I think Arsenal fans are, are still in that place. I really do. No, you certainly got a big grin on your face, Adrian. Maybe another measure of Arsenal's new press: the fact that Conte decided with 20 minutes to go, and even though he was facing Arsenal, who have a history of. 
blowing such leads, decided to simply withdraw all of his attacking players, oh, apart from Harry Kane, with Eintracht Frankfurt coming up in the Champions League. Anyway, Arsenal, who have Bodo glimped at home, uh, not in the Arctic Circle, on Thursday, uh, will be facing Liverpool next weekend. And another of those acid tests of their expectations. We'll talk Liverpool next. Hello, listener. Now, how would you like a nice fat slice of the Totally Football Show, but on your bookshelf slash in your bathroom? Well, the good news is the all-new Totally Football book is available to order right now, and it's the place to read the finest football writing about where football is in 2022 from all of your favourites at Team Totally and The Athletic. We've got pieces by Daniel Storey, Carl Anker, Tom Williams and Katie Wyatt. James Horncastle has penned an emotional farewell to Giorgio Chiellini. Rafa Honigstein tells us about the thorny issue of Bayern Munich's relationship with Qatar. Duncan Alexander finds the most statistically average footballer in the Premier League and it's all introduced by our very own James Richardson. There's also a day-by-day diary of last season, a comprehensive on this day section and of course a big chunk of quiz questions so you can run your very own intertotally with all your friends or by yourself. The Totally Football Book is edited by Nick Miller and it's out on October the 6th, but you can pre-order it now from everywhere that sells books. This is The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Marches wide. Here's Matoma. Lalana left it, Welbeck missed it, but it's scored in the back by Leandro Trossard for his trouble. Liverpool 3. Brighton 3. Terrific stuff from the Seagulls in uh, Roberto De Zerbi's first game in charge. As expected, his teams tend to score loads and concede loads. Uh, How much can we tell about what life's going to be like under the new manager from this single 90 minutes? Well, Brighton are a really well-run club, so they will have gone for a manager who they think can continue the same principles as Graham Potter. On the evidence of this game, and it's obviously the smallest sample size possible, they might well be a little bit more chaotic doing it. Graham Potter's Brighton tried to control games, whereas Brighton seemed to almost deliberately pass up that control and play on this kind of high-wire chaos football, which is absolutely brilliant to watch and was the most effective way of, of getting at Liverpool because as soon as they did kind of try and sit back on a lead a bit, they, they were punished. But mm. I thought the most impressive thing from De Zerbi, um, was the way he used those substitutes and kind of shifted the game in the last 20 minutes because he brought on on, on Matoma who has struggled for minutes so far this season but Brighton fans are really really excited about him and he just drove at Trent Alexander-Arnold which is exactly what they needed to do because Alexander-Arnold is under pressure was probably at fault for at least one of the goals was a bit off for another of them and Matoma just drove at him and, and, and opened the game up again in Brighton's favour there's such a belief about Brighton which given that they've just lost a long-term manager and one of the best managers in the country could easily have been absent for a few weeks while they kind of you know Adrian will know more than me but players in these situations kind of tend to sort of size up a manager I think in the first few weeks but they don't seem to have done that they've just gone we're going to carry on doing what we do. Mm. Took the two-goal lead at Anfield. Could have been a lot more. Liverpool came back to lead themselves 3-2 before Trossard, with his hat-trick goal, earned them a point. Interesting, you mentioned a trend there. It's even interesting, even with Andrew Robertson out at the moment, that it was Alexander-Arnold's flank that was being attacked 
Not just in this game, but other ones too. It's like managers didn't see Klopp explaining how Trent's a really good defender before the match. <laughs> yeah, and we should say their next two league opponents are, are Arsenal, who targeted Tottenham's right flank on, on Saturday, and Manchester City, who targeted Manchester United's right flank on, on Sunday. So it's not going to get any easier. And it wasn't just Trent Alexander-Arnold that, that struggled in this game. I think I think Van Dijk, you've got to look at his part in in some of the goals as well. It was not pretty. I mean, for the for the leveller, I mean, he looked he looked really stiff, st- stiffer than I was probably the last time I played five aside, which was exceptionally stiff. Um, he, he just couldn't move his body, and uh, and that's a problem. I think he's been playing that way. For a number of weeks now, Virgil van Dijk. So, so that's an issue for them. But yeah, we shouldn't take too much away from Brighton. Trossard is, is no. a really exciting player. Underrated. Um, great left foot hat-trick, wasn't it, from, from him? And I just... I'd, what I admire most about Trossard is his, his ability to play pretty much anywhere. Because Potter used him as a wing-back on, on numerous occasions, didn't he? That, that was sort of allowed to roam here, there and everywhere. Here he was playing behind the main striker. He can play as a 10 out wide either side. Yeah, he's, he's a good footballer. Well, Brighton looking brilliant. If it's too early probably to draw too many conclusions from the first 90 minutes of De Zerbe's reign, can we, though, add some sums up about Liverpool? They're, what, 11 points behind Arsenal, 10 behind Man City. They do face both those teams in the next two rounds, and they do have a game in hand on both of them as well. But... It doesn't look like this is a blip anymore. No, it looks um, it looks pretty unlikely that they can make a title charge this season. I mean, we'll, we'll know more in the next couple of weeks, but you'd have to say with the issues they've got in several areas of the pitch, it looks unlikely that they're going to go on one of those Liverpool-esque, you know, 19 wins in 20. And equally, you can't see City dropping <laughs> a huge amount of points between now and the rest for the rest of the season. So it it it, it looks it looks really unlikely. I think um, issues in midfield. Issues with certain goal scorers and issues in defence. It's, it's too much to fix, I think. And issues overall in their heads seem to be the message from, from Klopp and, and one or two of the players. Confidence. Yeah, and, and that's the, the flip side to to that the Liverpool rise of, as Tim mentions, those 19 wins in 20 games. That can make you feel untouchable. It can also, when things start to go wrong, make you feel like, you don't really know how to fix it. And I think if there's anything that stays true of Liverpool in in the winning runs and the periods of poor form, it's that when one element of the team isn't working, it feels like that very quickly spreads to the rest of the team. And, and Klopp, you know, a very passionate defence of Trent Alexander-Arnold, and, and rightly so. But it, it almost became a a kind of prosecution of the system because he said the reason he's struggling is that we're asking him to press so high at the pitch and that press isn't really working so therefore mm. he's being exposed in defence and, and that's exactly the point if, if if one thing isn't working in the final third it suddenly makes your right back struggle which is a very difficult thing to fix because you're trying to fix sort of four or five things at once mm. Yeah, well Klopp's been here before of course in his seventh seasons at his previous sides. Is this one going to turn out different? We'll get more idea, as you say, in the next few weeks. So good start for De Zerbe. Anyway, good start for Graham Potter too in his first Premier League match with a 2-1 victory at Palace. Although Palace and uh, their owner, Steve Parrish, uh, rather upset that Thiago Silva wasn't sent off in this game for that deliberate handball. Adrian, you're nodding. Oh, it's, it's, it's a very, very cynical piece of play. He was last man. 
the player might have been to the left of centre, but he was going to flick it, flick it around to the centre. He would have been through one v one. It's the it's a very very obvious red card. And um, yes, yeah, Stuart Atwell it was on VAR, I believe. Um, yeah, I, I think he's made a huge error there, and that was at one 0 up. By the way, Crystal Palace were in front at that po- at that point in the game, so it was a, a really pivotal call. And I, yeah, if I was Steve Parrish, if I was Patrick Vieira. I would have been fuming too. Mm. Chelsea turning it round with goals from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And ooh, what a stunner from Conor Gallagher, former former Eagle himself on loan. Mm. Why Why didn't he celebrate? I, 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 Adrian, I'm going to ask you this. You know, you, you, you're, 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 you're a young professional. Yeah. You've just scored a last-minute a last winner. Massive moment in your career. First goal for your club as well, I believe. And you, you're able to stand still, really? <laughs> I do get it. Yeah, I get why you think that is just so wrong. Um, the the thing is, you're talking to someone that the Did better the goal that I scored, and 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 uh, I didn't score that many goals. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, but the better the goal, my rule was always that, that to, to dampen the celebration. Just just mm. play it, play it down. Like That's a lot here. Yeah, if you if you mm. if you smack one in the top corner, it's like yeah. I'm just going to stand there and, and say, "Yeah, this is this is this is normal." Turn your collar up, maybe. Yeah, exactly. This is what happens. So I can actually see why why Gallagher did it, but but I, yeah, I know the point you're making. If ever there's an opportunity to go absolutely mental, it would have been would have been there, wouldn't it? <laughs> Chelsea have Milan coming up on Wednesday in the Champions League, a Milan side who are just behind. Uh, Napoli and Atalanta at the top of the city. Astanis, but coming to this game with all sorts of injuries. Mike Mannion, their brilliant goalkeepers, not available. Teo Hernandez, the marauding fullback as well, which given the way that they'll probably approach the game, could be a, a big loss. But Rafa Liao, who's a bit of a Chelsea target himself, is fit and did score at the weekend in an extraordinary match. They went to Rainy Empoli, only scored the first goal after 80 minutes was stunned when Empoli then got an equaliser in the 91st, but still scored another two after that to win 3-1. Anyway, looking forward to that match on Wednesday. And others too uh, mentioned that the uh, Totally Football Show European edition will be out on kind of Tuesday lunchtime-ish. Looking forward to what, well, looking back on what's happened at the weekend, but also forward to all the midweek action. There's some amazing matches in the Champions League. Uh, also, uh, Benfica against Paris Saint-Germain should be an absolute cracker. Inter uh, taking on Barcelona. And perhaps the pick of the bunch might be Ajax against Napoli. Mm. Anyway, look forward to uh, the thoughts of Rafa, Jules, James and Alvaro on Tuesday lunchtime. And while I'm plugging other podcasts, uh, the Athletic Football Podcast, uh, there's a special episode of that out right now with uh, Carl Anker uh, featuring in a panel discussing the impact of taking the knee in football and where the gesture goes from here. Well, next up on this Totally Football Show... We're going to be talking about managerial movements and more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. 3rd of October, on this day in 2018, Steve Bruce sacked by Aston Villa or one day after a Villa fan had thrown a cabbage at him. There's no coming back from a cabbage. On this day in 2022, Middlesbrough, in the bottom three of the Championship, have released their manager, Chris Wilder. It's a busy time for managers getting the hoof. Of course, we're going to get onto Wolves in a second. But Hull, in the Championship, also dispensed with their boss, a shot at Arvaladze. Uh, curiously, they waited until almost the end of the international break to do it, just eight hours uh, before Hull took on Luton and had a pretty abject performance. Uh, Watford, meanwhile, who you will recall, uh, did replace uh, Rob Edwards with Slavon Bilic previously, were rewarded with a 4-0 win at Stoke. So well done, the Hornets. They scored more goals in that match away on Sunday than they had in their previous five away games under Rob Edwards, so, you know, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, Wolves parting company with Bruno Large after their 2-0 defeat at West Ham on Saturday. Tim, Mm. was this a surprise to you? No, not at all. Um, Fans have started to turn. They they turned during the game on Saturday, which always tends to be uh, a sign that something's coming. And then Ruben Neves came out after the game and said the players aren't aren't training well enough or hard enough, um, mm. which Bruno had no sort of defence for. So um, it's, it's a shame for him. You know, I've spent a bit of time with him and he's a really nice guy and fairly devoid of ego, which is which is quite rare at the top level of football. Um, but the, the problem for Bruno Large is, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a tactical expert. He's written books on tactics. Um, if you're coming in as a sort of a tactical specialist and you can't solve the goal scoring problem that Wolves have had, you know, 41 goals in 46 games since he took over um, no team has scored fewer in that time here's a quick stat on that Tim uh, Adam Bate pointing out that they haven't just been outscored by every Premier League team this season they've actually scored fewer Premier League goals since April than Burnley and Burnley were relegated <laughs> yeah. in May yeah and also uh, Erling, Erling Haaland has as many uh, hat-tricks this season as Wolves have goals what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> just the three so far Um and then also the the, fan, the fans, I mean, you know, they would sing his name, but they never truly warmed to him. I mean, Nuno was an impossible act to follow. You know, people mm. were weeping at his last game. He was loved. You know, his, his face is still graffitied, you know, across the city. It was going to be hard to follow. And, and Bruno's a sort of a, a geeky PE teacher, uh, very studious. So they were never going to warm to him as much as they did Nuno. And I, I guess that gives them less patience. But but what one win in 15 either side of the season break. Um, right. Suggestions he's lost a few of the players in the dressing room, and they spent 100 million in the summer. After after a couple of years of really tight spending, they they spent a lot of money in the summer, so it was only going to go one way. All right, Matt Davis Adams predicting at the end of last season that Wolves would go down in this campaign. They are currently now in the bottom three. Who do we think's coming in then? Uh, who, who who do you anticipate? 
is it going to be a Portuguese manager? I mean, immediately there was talk of uh, Ruben Amorim of Sporting, or of Yulan Lopetegui as, as well of um, Sevilla, who's set to depart that club. Well, I mean, has been set to depart for a while. What, what, what are you well, hearing? They'd essentially appointed Lopetegui in 2016. He'd, he'd verbally agreed to become Fosun's first manager of the club when they when they bought the club and sacked Kenny Jacket. Um, and he'd verbally agreed and, and was talking about transfers and everything. That's how far down the line it was. But then the Spain job came up, um, so he abandoned Wolves. But I, apparently they're still on they're still on good terms. Wolves played severe uh, a couple of years later, and it was all seemed very cosy. Um, Wolves got Walter Zenger instead, by the way. Um, <laughs> so you can see you got the, the rough end of that deal. Um, but yeah, you, you 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 can Google Portuguese managers um, who belong to the Guest of stable, and, and that's your short list basically. That's what they've done with the last two. You know, Scott Sellers is their technical director. They've they've got they have got heads of recruitment. They have got heads of scouting. You know, believe it or not, but it's it's Uncle George, as they call him in those parts, that who normally um, makes the big decisions. And I don't really expect anything different this time around. Despite mm. despite Chris Wilder's you know late late availability, um, and and Sean Dyche as well. I just don't really see that happening. Okay, uh, Chris Wilder, who had been earmarked for the Bournemouth job, they had a nil-nil draw with Brentford, and uh, Gary Neal perhaps uh, thus uh, reinforcing his claim to uh, to stay on as as the permanent replacement for Scott Barker. There, unbeaten in four matches under his interim management, Brentford meanwhile in that game keeping their first clean sheet in twenty Premier League away games. Uh, Daniel, you're probably itching to say well done West Ham, by the way, who did win that game against Wolves that saw Bruno Large dismissed. They've moved up to 15th now. They're and elect on Thursday in the Europa mm, League. I'll be there. Mm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Europa Conference League, I'm hearing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'll be there. I'm doing a lovely little midweek trip of Frankfurt, Spurs, Leipzig, Celtic and Andalek West Ham. So. Ooh. Um, that does sound yeah, nice. I've yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, West Ham basically Boeing Boeing clicked, which helps. Uh, and just Declan Rice is just—he's a joy to watch. I know he's not—you know—people tend to obsess about sort of attacking skillful players at the moment, but I just—I think he's probably my favourite player to watch in the Premier League at the moment. Declan Rice, just the way he has to do everything in that team of like winning the ball, but and also driving forward and playing kind of progressive passes and creating chances. He's He's doing absolutely everything and he's able to do absolutely everything, which I suspect West Ham would be better off trying to slightly mitigate some of his work, given the schedule he's got for the next seven or eight months. But um, yeah, he's he's just in fantastic form at club level. Yeah, I did co-coms on this game and um, I didn't actually think West Ham were very good. I didn't think, oh. I thought that they were needlessly defensive as well, sort of just inviting uh, so much pressure from Wolves. I mean, it was almost banter, wasn't it? Because they were saying, well, we, you're never going to score anyway. So we'll just, ex- <laughs> we'll, we'll retreat, we'll defend on the edge of our own box and, and, and we'll just pick you off. Um, that was the, that was the team talk, was it? Written on the, written on the tactics board. Just, just, I just, think so, just... but... What about today, Diego like. Costa, Adrian? Was he, he, he looked good. i got to say, I thought he looked the part. Obviously, he only came on for, I think, around half an hour. But mm. he looked sharp. He looked like he cared. He was sort of trying to boss everybody around. He had a real presence up top. And I think Wolves did look better when he was on there. He missed a good chance when Traore, another player that you think, how can he not get in this team? So dropped his shoulder, went to the byline for about the 20th time and, and he actually found a good cross this time. And it, it was a free header and you would have expected him to score. But yeah, he 
he could be a really key player for them in the weeks to come. It's just can he, can he last 90 minutes, I guess. At the other end of the pitch, I thought Skamaka was the best player. I thought he was outstanding. A great goal. And uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a proper number nine that can hold it and, and, and not just score close range goals either. Not just about headers. He can smack them in the top bins. And that's what he did here in this game. He did Skamaka it for Sassuolo them. a few times. Yeah, he's, yeah mm. he, he can, Skamaka can smack it, that is for sure. Just mm, to say on nice. um, Wolves' strikers, because I feel like Bruno Lodge does deserve a little bit of a, of a defence here, because obviously he'll be listening as well. Um, <laughs> that was it last, Yes, they haven't scored goals, but last season Raul Jimenez just wasn't the same player, you know, unfortunately, since his, since his fractured skull. So they spent £15 million on Kaladzic, who has got a horrendous injury record, and lo and behold, does his ACL in his first game. And then gets Diego Costa, who you know I agree with Adrian has, has got something to offer. Certainly, as a focal point, if, if not a goal scorer. But he's come out of semi-retirement basically. You know, mm. he's, he's not played this year, so you know, largely trying to build a team around a striker, and he hasn't really had one. And also, you know, the, so that they started the game without a striker on Saturday. They also started the game with one centre half because um, Nathan Collins is suspended, and Wolves, uh, you know, and this isn't Large's fault, they've, they've got rid of Connor Cody on loan to Everton, which looks stupider by the week. They've sold Wheelie Bolly to Forest, and they've sold uh, Dendonka to Villa. That's three centre-halves, you know, willingly given to other Premier League clubs. And all is it takes not... is one, suspe- one suspension for Ruben Neves to be playing at centre-half. Right, so, but is, you know, was that not Bruno Large's doing, though? He has he has some same recruitment, but but not the final say. And he's he's right. he said he said publicly, you know, I need I need I need more defenders, but he but he didn't get them. The, the Cody one is is fascinating to a, a non Wolves fan because effectively, Larger wanted to move to a back four. I get. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Tim, but Larger had this idea to move to a back four and and didn't really think that Cody was capable of playing in that or certainly not suited to that and because Cody had so much goodwill they thought well we'll let you go on loan to to, to Everton which as you say now looks a, a huge gamble and lo and behold Cody's now playing in a back four for Everton and looking absolutely fine and Wolves played with a back three on <laughs> on Saturday. <laughs> no absolutely it looks ridiculous but also there's, there's a man management point of view there because that 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 was that was said to be Lars's weakness when he when he joined his man management's not great and and he doesn't really talk to the players very much you know uh, doesn't really have one-on-one sort of meetings with them or doesn't tell them while they're out of the team it's not really his strength but then you've got Connor Cody basically ran the dressing room probably one of the most impressive captains or people that I've ever met to be honest it's an unbelievable leader so to let him go um, yeah, like you say, it just looks it looks ridiculous, but a, but a master stroke for Everton. Wolves with some large uh, shoes to fill. Uh, then uh, Connor Cody at Everton now at the heart of the number one defence in the Premier League. Uh, this following their uh, come from behind victory at St Mary's this weekend, they moved up to eleventh place. Frank Lampard's Toffees. Back to back wins for Everton. They're on on a seven game unbeaten run in all competitions. Only conceded seven goals. As I say, come from behind at St Mary's. That's the sort of place you you go to if you need a come from behind win, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Southampton are kind of trapped in this shame spiral this season in that they spent all their money on teenagers. And then because you have to have faith in teenagers and kind of patience with them, Harsen who does come under pressure for not picking them and leaving them on the bench. So on Saturday, he picked seven of them in the starting eleven, and then they made mistakes. And he said after the game, well, that's the thing with young players. They make mistakes, but they're better than the players who have already got here. So, mm. he, what you know, you, he, either something's gone badly wrong there where he wasn't on board with 
buying almost predominantly players aged between 18 and 21 or and I suspect this is the reality is that he's not going to be there very long wow well, sometimes you do need to be punched in the face to, to learn something. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not queuing up for that theory, by the okay. way. <laughs> They're dangerously close to the, 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 the bottom three at the moment. Only one point clear down in 16th place, Adrian. Yeah, on, on Pickford. He's been punched in the face a few times, hasn't he? He's had right. a few clips around the ear. Well, he's, he's improved, he's, hasn't he? He's suffered, hasn't mm. he, Jordan Pickford? And he's come through it. I think he's been one of the most impressive players in the division actually this season character wise because a little bit like Granit Xhaka he's come back from a position where people were questioning him not quite as much as Xhaka but and, and I think he's he's playing better than ever you look at Opta's prevented goals stats and he is sitting on top of the pile he's saved 2.4 goals that Everton should have conceded so um yeah he's the he's the most influential keeper in the Premier League right now also, we should say on um, on Everton's back too. It was Cody on loan and Tarkowski on a free, um, yeah. and they've got the league's best defence. That's mm. pretty good. They've also they've also nailed it because they've got players who probably are, are very good, but probably won't go to the World Cup. Which means, yeah. the, and the team is kind of full of those players. Dominic Calvert Lewin won't go. Can get himself fit. Demarai Gray won't go. They've got Anthony Gordon won't go. All of their important players probably won't go to the World Cup, which is really helpful this season. Wow. Interesting times ahead then, perhaps, for Everton. Also this weekend, there was a nil-nil at Ellen Road, much to Jesse Marsh's displeasure as his uh, 10-man leads finished uh, nil-nil with Aston Villa. And loads of goals, meanwhile, at Craven Cottage, where Newcastle were 4-1 winners against 10-man Fulham. That was after Nathaniel Shalabar's red card, only eight minutes into the game. Holy cow, that Almiron goal. <laughs> yeah. Was it just me that I got a little bit of Decanio vibes out of it? I know it wasn't a scissor oh, yeah. kick, but it was the sort of angle of the volley. Um, with the, to take it on his left foot there from the angle of the pass, I thought was astonishing, and uh, it it genuinely was a thing of beauty, wasn't it? The way that he connected with the ball and it it went into that far top corner. That was one of my favourite goals of the season for sure. It, yeah, it'll be in the mix for goal of goal of the season. I I, I would imagine. Should Almiron be in the mix for you were talking about most improved players? It, it does seem like he's really finding a whole new level of efficacy. He needed to, didn't he? Yeah, well, that's because true. he. I think he had, I think thirteen combined goals and assists before Saturday in, well, over yeah, over three years at Newcastle. Uh, he, he's a really hard-working player. He's really popular in the dressing room. He's a real kind of live wire character. They love him there, but he just didn't have that kind of goal contributions that that managers need and with with Alexander Isaac coming in I think there was probably a chance that Isaac could play off the right and Callum Wilson play centrally but you you wouldn't drop Almiron now I think he I, I, he also is one of those that Newcastle struggled to keep everybody fit so they struggled to get Bruno and Sam Maximan and Almiron and a central striker be it Wilson or Isaac all fit at the same time and I think Almiron's one of those players that when everyone else is kind of hogging possession a little bit he's a really good surprise option on the other side and that the key is to be you know become more consistent doing that because he's they signed him because he was incredibly talented and he was kind of tearing was up league MVP MLS at, at yeah and he was tearing MLS. up MLS and yeah. the scouting reports to him were, were incredibly high and Newcastle were, were really grateful that they managed to get him and he's just not quite kicked on but yeah as you say as Adrian says that goal is 
a superb piece of technical ability, mm. and he can do that. Mm. Excellent. Fulham still eighth, by the way, despite that defeat. However, worrying scenes as both Kozawa and Alexander Mitrovic limped off in this game. Don't know yet the uh, how serious the that, that injury is to Mitrovic. Hmm. All right. Do you want to say anything about Leeds nil, Aston Villa, a snail-paced match? <laughs> uh, can I say something about Jesse Marsh? I feel like I'm always having a pop at him every time I come on this show. But... But... The guy is too emotional, in my opinion. I, 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 Don't you want that? Fans want him, I think, to mm. a degree. But is it good for the team? Leeds is a pretty combustible sort of atmosphere anyway, isn't it? And I think that because he's so emotional and he wears his heart on his sleeve so much, and he gets basically he got wound up here. He got incredibly wound up here by Stephen Gerrard's tactics, which which I think is, is, is great for, from Stevie G, by the way because he went to frustrate Leeds. He knew that by slowing the game down, it would wind up the manager, it would wind up the players, it would wind up the crowd, and it would it would make it a different type of match. That is smart management, mm. and others will definitely copy what Steven Gerrard did in this game. Not least because Jesse Marsh spent the, the, the press conference and the interviews afterwards bemoaning the fact that, right. that they were time-wasting and they were killing the game. So I, I just think he's, he's too much of an open book. And and if you have a manager like that, it will wind mm. the players up. And if players are wound up, their discipline will go at times. And and I right. think it's safe to say that Sinistera's discipline went in this game and he's not the only one this season. All right, then. Well, still to come is the third part of Tim Spears' cross-town or cross-regional rivalry triumvirate. When you'll be attending, is it Leicester City, Nottingham Forest, or Forest Le- Leicester City, Tim? It's Leicester, Nottingham right. Forest. Are there although, trains although, available? Uh, I'm driving. I'm driving oh, right. across okay. from my hotel in Manchester uh, shortly. But is it a proper derby? That's the question I'll be asking myself throughout the evening. There's, there's, someone's shaking their head here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can be incredibly inflammatory and say it is to Leicester. Um, because of the geography, is that their? I guess their closest club is probably Coventry, just about, which isn't a rivalry. So uh, it is to Leicester, but obviously Forest have Derby, so it's a kind of. Uh, I mean, your piece will be fabulous without needing my input, Tim. But uh, it, it's a weird game. In in recent years, it's felt quite nasty in a way that the Derby game. The Derby game is is Derby, so it's kind of built up beyond all recognition, and everyone feels sick on match day and. Fans certainly don't drink in the sunshine laughing before the game. Um, whereas Leicester has got this kind of nasty element now. Uh, I mean, before the FA Cup game last season, Nottingham Town Centre got smashed up and it feels like it's a it's an excuse for nastiness and snideness rather than a big derby in a sporting context, I think. Oh, well, I hope we don't have any of, of that kind of thing this time around. And Tim, that you have a, an enjoyable trip. Uh, to the King Power. Uh, when's your piece uh, out? Uh, it'll be out on Tuesday. Oh, nice. Daniel, anything else you'd like to mention? Yeah, I've got, uh, I spent a few days in, in Denmark last week at FC Norgeland, um, mm. speaking to anyone and everyone there from sort of CEO down to players and coaches. Um, the headline is that they've got the youngest football team in the world. That's the kind of big sell. They've got an average age of 21 and a half in their first team. Uh, and they've got this relationship with Right to Dream Academy, who are now the co-owners of the club. So, just a fascinating football club. They're basically they they do they do care about the league position, but 
their whole driver is just to bring through young players and then sell them on. And they've sold Mohamed Kudus to Ajax, who's the kind of current poster boy, but also Mikel Damsgaard, who's now at Brentford. And it's an incredible operation just watching a team train where the average age is 20 or 21. Mm. Wow, brilliant. Many thanks. Adrian, anything you want to plug since we're all plugging stuff? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> what the EFL? What the EFL is, it will be ah, out right, yeah, um, okay. late, later today. Lots and lots of uh, sackings to discuss. That's kind yeah. of what the show's, show's been uh, centred around in, in recent weeks. But yeah, it's, it's good fun with me, Matt Davis-Adams and Sam Parkin. Boom. Excellent. Well, look forward to all of that. Allow me to mention again that Sophie Football Show European Edition will be with you Tuesday lunchtime. That's it for today's edition of the show. Many thanks for joining us. Adrian, Daniel, Tim, Bruce, Charlie and you, listener. Have a great time. We'll catch up with you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.